Welcome along on a hot summer afternoon, episode 13. You're listening to Prevention is the New Cure, our podcast about all things health and NHS with a political twist. I'm Steve Bryan. I'm the MP for Winchester in Hampshire. I chair the Health and Social Care Select Committee in the House of Commons. And I'm Helen Stokes-Lampard. I'm a frontline general practitioner in the Midlands, Litchfield to be precise, uh, chair of the National Academy for Social Prescribing. And until recently, I was chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges. And now... I'm back at the University of Birmingham as a professor, but more of that another time, Steve. Back to the future. Hi, Helen. Nice to see you. Um, so you, you had your holiday a few weeks ago. I've been away in Devon last week with the family, as we do. How was it? It was good. It was good. And uh, considering the weather over the last few weeks, we, we feel that we lucked out, really, because we didn't have much rain at all. So we were just messing about on the on the estuary and we were messing about on the beach and Monty's had a great time digging in sand. Excellent. Was, was he like, brought a lot with no, him back? Digging for Australia, that dog was. Um, really, really enjoyed himself. And the kids had a great time, too. So, yeah, we were down there in a bit of West Country action and uh, wow. we got back on the week weekend so last time this is episode 13 as i said last time we were talking about summer holiday weren't we and all Mm -hmm. those different issues and of course when we were away i mean there's so many things to talk about but um we've got a guest coming up shortly which is going to take i think the most most of this week's pod Mm. but when i was away obviously the news came through and we got to really start talking about this about the conviction of lucy letby uh at the at the at the the chester hospital so I mean, where to even start? It doesn't need any introduction. Everybody listening knows the story. Uh, The most prolific child killer, almost the most prolific child killer since Rosemary West. Uh, 14 life sentences, very unusually life sentences for attempted murder, as well as the murder she was convicted of. Um, Where to even start, Helen? And I think, you know what, one of the things that struck me with the judge in his sentencing on Monday, he said that almost how she got away of it for so long and how she she used this to her advantage was that it seemed so improbable to yeah. her colleagues that somebody who was there to care for, let's face it, already poorly babies could do this. And she almost used that as her shield. Yeah. And it just begs belief. And uh, And it's not been a good week for the health service as a result, has it? You know, I was chatting yesterday to one of my nursing colleagues in surgery and we were chewing this over about how much harm this has done for the trust in nurses. That's what she was referring to. But I said about healthcare professionals and the whole system more widely, because nice nurse, Lucy, you're right. Nobody could believe it was possible. Child killers are very rare. Not lovely Lucy, one of them said, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and you know, so, so child killers are rare, nurses who kill are rare, but one in a million happens. And 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 she was that evil that happened. And that the the risk is that this will do harm to people's perception of other healthcare professionals. So I think there's something here for me about how we build trust and we build trust by proving that our systems are more robust to reduce the chance of this happening again. There will be another child killer who will emerge at some point but the system must be able to identify it faster and respond in a more robust way i mean i as a doctor i think about what those pediatric consultants went through who raised the alarm who were not taken seriously and were then forced to apologize to her 
uh, for raising the alarm. And I mean, there was a, a very powerful documentary. The BBC had obviously pulled this all together in advance. I'm sure that whole theses will be written on this for decades to come. And, but I do think that in terms of what comes as next as an inquiry is so important. And I, you've spoken out quite strongly about an inquiry, Steve. Yeah, I have. And I think moments like this afford reflection, Helen. But reflection without action doesn't mean anything at all. So I think there are two things that this moment allows us. One is basically there have been a lot of NHS public inquiries, big public inquiries. So you know, obviously you talk, you got mid staff, you got the Bristol yeah. Heart Heart Inquiry, and the Beverly Allen murders led to an inquiry. And listening to Robert Francis speak on the media this weekend, who obviously led the mid staffs inquiries. Mm. He, he said that there are a number of recommendations that were made in Shipman. Yeah. He endorsed in Midstaffs. Yeah. That are only now being implemented. Yeah. And some have not been implemented. Yeah. And I think what we need to do, and I think this is somewhere the select committee could help, and the expert panel that advises me for, on which Robert sits, is to look at all of the recommendations from these previous inquiries and see how many of them have been implemented and those that haven't, and if not, why not? That would be a good place to start. Then the second part of it is the public inquiry itself into, into what's happened in, with Let Be at the Countess of Chester Hospital. And I think that does need to be judge-led, and I think it does need to be on a statutory basis so that it can compel witnesses. That's not to say that the chief executive and medical director um, at the time haven't said they'll comply fully and give evidence, as they should. But the, the, I suspect that the ramifications of this case are going to be very far reaching for the NHS. They're going to go on for many, many years. Their yeah. police are investigating other cases. There are calls for retrial on some of the 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 hung verdicts on some of the six other counts of babies yeah. at the Countess Chester. So I don't think it's going to get underway anytime soon. But when it does, it needs to be able to reach as far and wide as it possibly needs to. And the, the thread that draws those two things together is confidence yep. because the public need to have confidence. And I suspect, I said this on Twitter today, I suspect that that's where the government will end up. I think they will end up with a judge-led statutory public inquiry. And uh, if the House was sitting at the moment, there would be urgent questions in the House. Steve, thank you. Can I go back to that point you made, that first point about all the inquiries and all the recommendations that they've made needing to be pulled together and mapped? I think that would be fantastic if the Select Committee can take that on, because I'm worried about both the public confidence and the needs of the families who've been so badly affected and needing something tangible quite quickly. And if the committee could do that, could work on that in the coming months, whilst, as you say, all the other legal challenges are ongoing and the decision as to what an inquiry is going to look like is made, that would be something that the rest of us, the rest of government and the rest of the NHS and society can be working on. I think that's really important. So let's push for that together, yeah? Yeah, let's do that. This one is, as they say, gonna run and run. And yeah. she absolutely should have been in the courtroom to face the music oh, yes. and hear her sentence. It is an absolute disgrace. And the government will change the law to make sure that the convicted hear those Good. witness statements and what they've done. Let's take a Good. break. You're listening to Prevention is the New Cure, our podcast with myself, Steve Bryan, MP, and Dr. Helen Stokes-Lampard. We are joined by two very good friends of mine, two very special people, Emma Kosher and Paul Carey. Um, Owen Carey had just turned 18. He was celebrating his birthday with family members and his girlfriend on a day out in London in April 2017. 
and he'd suffered multiple food allergies all his life. So he was well used to ordering meals to, to fit his diet and to, when he was out in restaurants or when he was at home. The day ended in tragedy. Emma, welcome to the podcast. Tell us, and I know it's awful, um, tell us what happened to your brother Owen. So he was celebrating his 18th birthday, as you just said. He was at the Star Wars exhibition with um, with our other brother and my husband and our son and his girlfriend, Martha. So it was a big sort of family event and they were all completely Star Wars mad. Um, so it was huge as an event of joy. And they decided at the end of the Star Wars exhibition, they would need to go for lunch before they all went their separate ways. And um, they chose, having looked at various different options, they chose to go to Byron Burger um, down at the O2. They had a discussion with the waiter about Owen's allergies and they chose something and slightly deconstructed and reconstructed a dish based on the fact that it would be safe for Owen to eat. So he chose a skinny chicken burger, but without the bun, so no wheat, because that was one of his allergies, um, without the dressing, um, and with a salad on the side, um, all different things that would make his food safe so that he didn't have any of his allergens within his food. Um, he ate a few bites of the chicken, the skinny grilled chicken, and um, which, according to the menu, was just plain chicken. And he knew that something didn't taste right. He knew that there, he was having a reaction straight away. I think his, his mouth started tingling or just didn't taste right. So he only had a few bites and he stopped eating, um, decided to go their own separate ways. And he immediately started feeling really wheezy. Um, he suffered from asthma a lot. And we now know that asthma combined with food allergies is a real kind of fatal concoction it's like a dangerous like a terrible cocktail that you can have um so he started experiencing this kind of like mild to moderate wheeziness which once because he was walking to the tube station and the walking then exacerbated the asthma and it got worse and worse and worse by the time they got to the south bank which was for the second part of their day with so it's just him and martha his girlfriend had gone down to the South Bank. By the time they got to the South Bank, he could barely breathe. And he asked someone um, for help. He asked a security guard. He said, I think I'm having an, an anaphylactic reaction, an allergic reaction. Is there anywhere with an EpiPen? Annoyingly, he'd forgotten, which is very, very rare for him, forgotten his EpiPens on that day. Um, and and it, at that point, after asking the security guard for some help, he just collapsed on the ground and and uh, and that was basically it. They had, there was a passing army medic who worked on him and the, um, I think, two or three ambulances arrived almost immediately and administered huge doses of adrenaline, much more than an EpiPen, EpiPen could have ever um, given him. And uh, and nothing nothing could could work. Nothing worked. This there was like a runaway one runaway train reaction going on in his body, which meant that everything was just out of control and his his neck swell up and they couldn't get an intubating tube in um that it was just they just couldn't bring him back it, it was there was too much catastrophic reaction that had, been, that had happened and we're so sorry to hear it and the reason we wanted you to come on the podcast is because we've been meaning we've been wanting to talk about allergies and and how allergy good allergy management uh is part of preventing poor health and uh helen uh, just to give the background, though, so Emma was a constituent of mine until relatively recently, and there was a parliamentary debate, and you contacted me, Emma, and asked me if I'd go and take part in the debate, which I did, and we subsequently met, and Paul, who's your dad, and, uh, and Owen's dad, who's also joining us uh, on the podcast from Ireland. Welcome, Paul. Nice to see you. 
Hi, Steve. Hi, thanks for joining us. Um, so, Helen, yeah. before we get on to what Owen's Law is all about and why Emma and Paula are on the podcast today to raise awareness of what happened to, to Owen and what they're campaigning for a change of the law to be, um, allergens and good management of allergens critical in in prevention of of ill health and obviously in this case it went to 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 a tragic place yeah but 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 happily it doesn't always go there but it but it does lead to to poor health outcomes doesn't it so emma first of all thank you so much for sharing so articulately um but sensitively the tragic story about your brother um you know it's 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 awful it's terrible what happened and for me as a frontline GP, you know, I see people with allergies every day in clinical practice and many people are dismissive of allergies and they don't take them seriously, um, partly because there are different types of allergies and of different severities. But anyone who's had a child, a young child who's developed, you know, allergies from birth, which are, you know, or infancy, which is what, of course, Owen was in that category, um, do understand how seriously it has to be taken. One of the things I deal with regularly is those who don't get it so the family and friends the colleagues the fellow pupils in schools and I think I mean all um you know the whole sort of range of atopic conditions people with asthma as well brittle asthma is another thing that one of the things that for me there's a lot of health information and prevention around getting better understanding of asthma generally you highlighted so many things I don't think we should go into the medical side that's not what we're here for but I think I'd like this moment to be a I hope this makes people pause and think about allergies more generally and when a colleague when if you when you're on a plane and somebody the announcement comes over there is a peanut allergy sufferer on this plane you flip and take that seriously do you you do not dare Get nuts out, get nuts out of your pocket, and start munching surreptitiously. It is serious, and the consequences absolutely can be deadly. So, um, I'll pause there because I can just go on my GP rant if I need to. But I, I think we want the time for you and Paul to talk to us more about what you're campaigning for and why. So, when I was health minister, we had Natasha's law, which was uh, inspired by a young lady called Natasha who died after eating a sandwich, I think, at Pret. Yeah. Um, and the law was changed around the the way that we describe products on takeaway, like sandwiches, for instance, from Pret. Emma, Paul, probably Paul, uh, your campaign, the Owens Law campaign, is to, as I understand, to bring parity to restaurant food could you just tell us a bit about the campaign sure so just go back in time if i may to back in just before 2014 when the eu uh, had a directive which required all member states then to provide information um on 14 substances 14 allergens there are more than that but 14 was what were required by this law and in in the UK and in Ireland and all other member states in 2014, these laws all came in. Now, each member state dealt with them slightly differently. I'm in Ireland, and I'll come back to that in a second, why I'm here. But in the UK, the law was not as as comprehensive as we would like it to be now. And to cut a long story short, whereas Natasha's law now requires what's called pre-packed food to be um, to have labels which state the allergens in bold, one of these 14, whichever is in the, the, the particular food item, to be stated in writing on the package. So you can easily read it. You don't have to ask any questions. 
that's called Natasha's Law. That's been running for about 18 months, almost two years perhaps now. And its implementation is obviously taking some time for everyone to get used to it, but it is picking up and there's been coverage of reports on how well that's doing. So that's in, in hand and that's the Natasha's Law story. Um, what we want is uh, the same law to be applied to restaurants. Now at the moment, restaurants, which is non-pre-packed food, of course, prepared on the site, on on the day or at the time the customer wants it that is not covered by these regulations in the same way that natasha's law is the restaurant operator still has to provide the information and by definition it has to be accurate but the regulations allow the the operator to do it by any means and it's literally those words that are in the regulations and we want those words by any means to be changed to in writing and in writing on the menu or in writing so that the customer can easily see it and doesn't have to ask. Um, and the reason I'm in Ireland, the Republic of Ireland put the same laws in in 2014, but they just went for the, the whole thing straight away. And everybody, all manner of food pretty much, has to uh, declare the allergens in writing without the customer having to ask. And that comes under a mixture of regulation and guidance from the uh, Irish equivalent of the Food Standards Agency. Here here in Ireland, it's called the Food Safety Agency uh, of, of Ireland, and they issue guidance, and there's the law there that says that the information on non-prepacked food, the allergen information, has to be available easily without the customer uh, needing to ask. So what we're doing here, I'm here with um, a, a gentleman called Ian Ferris. He's a lecturer in food standards and food safety at the University of Birmingham. He started his career as a caterer. He spent 10, 15 years as a caterer. He then moved into environmental health and regulation of the, of the catering industry. And now he's become a lecturer in the subject. And he does a bit of research as well. He's an expert in all these manner, in all these items. So he's with me, we're here for four days and we're going around looking at restaurants and talking to the operators to see how they find it implementing the Irish equivalent of the law, let's call it the Irish Owens law. Um, and we're finding generally no one has a problem with it and people are complying with it. Not 100%, I have to say, but it's basically showing us that if they can do it here in Ireland, so can uh, restaurants and food business operators generally do it in, in the UK. So we're campaigning to change the law. We've been uh, lobbying the Food Standards Agency in, in London, uh, we've been talking to the chair, Professor Susan Jeb and, and, and her, her officers. We've been talking to the ministers and we thank you, Steve, for helping us get in front of them. And we're generally promoting the whole campaign through whatever means we can, media, interviews, podcasts like this are fantastic. And we basically want people to understand it's not a great issue is not rocket science all we want is those words in the regulations that say by any means to be changed to in writing at the point of order or on the menu or so, something like that that's that's where we're coming from and it's all about improving the accuracy and the reliability of the information reducing the risk of errors because in owen's case my son's case he died because of a very simple error because it was all done verbally and the, the young waiter that served him on the day didn't implement things as he should have done didn't have the right information made assumptions about the food that owen was going to eat told owen it was okay to eat and i don't have a son anymore gosh steve 
It's a powerful piece of work that they're doing, Helen. And and Emma, when we first met, you told me how, you know, Owen had been so he's obviously grown up with series of allergies, you know, and, and school trips, school lunches, days out, yeah. holidays, everything. Yeah. You know, he just done so much to be so careful and just have to get unlucky once. And so yeah, that's why you want to change the law. And it was it was a it was a lack of understanding. I'm not sure when I um, when I explained about what happened to Owen on the day. I'm not sure I explained that actually his allergy was to dairy, which is quite a common allergy. Mm. And that there was buttermilk in the chicken that had been marinated in buttermilk, but it didn't say that that had happened. That that was the case on the menu. Um, having discussed it with the the server, the server who was, I mean, we don't know who exactly who the server was, but the assumption is that they were young, transient possibly English as a second language, you know, not necessarily fully aware of the implications of allergies and allergens present in food, you know, their lack of understanding and their lack of training, which is the obligation of the of the food outlet of the restaurant, had led to a complete mix up in communication, the chef wasn't notified, there was nothing on the menu to say marinated in buttermilk. So how was that person? Um, how was that person to have known? Um, you know, we don't blame the server. We blame the the lack of communication, the lack of training, and the lack of information available to that server. Because how you know, like I say, how were they to know? It's um, so that you know what we're trying to get in Owen's law isn't just about um, having the, the information on the face of the menu. That's the main point. The other point that we would like to see is is, is much better training and a much better understanding of people in the in the catering industry but also of the general public like you say it's you know it's a complete lack of understanding people think that having an allergy could be hay fever which is you know can make your life pretty miserable but it's not necessarily going to kill you whereas something like or something like an intolerance might give you a bit of an upset stomach or you might get hives but it's not necessarily which is uncomfortable and it's not nice to live with but it's not going to kill you something yeah. like Crohn's disease obviously is an autoimmune disease so you you know you're you have these horrible flare-ups and ultimately it can um, which which impact your life um on a on a daily basis and these flare-ups can get worse and it can have long-term effects which ultimately affect your health long term which is horrible but with anaphylaxis it's a really sudden reaction and and if you don't die from it you know from one single reaction if you don't die from it you are incredibly lucky and you yeah. can have other life-limiting illnesses brain damage from oxygen lack of oxygen to the brain you know other issues that come from the from the reaction it's not it's not just about you know i mean if, so anyway my point is it would be nice for owen's law to have the ideal for owen's law to have a general effect on the public to raise the awareness of the severity of allergens the different types of allergens the di allergies the different types of reactions that you can have and that if someone says they are allergic to something like you say you don't open that package of peanuts you don't even try to put you know a, a little bit of butter on their toast you know they could no. die so it's it's raising awareness as much and and improving the training so the communication within catering industry industries and establish, establishments is more um secure more safe so you've got this sort of double protection you've got you know you've got the protection of the wording you've got the protection of the uh, of the the training and the the verbal communication and it's, it hopefully that will mean that there are far fewer cases that could you know slip through the net accidentally so 
just a quick thing from the GP me, and then I'm going to ask Steve, I'm going to ask you about where we are with the legal process so we can all be on the same page with that. From, I mean, you mentioned, Emma, that unfortunately Owen didn't have his EpiPens with him that day. Mm. One of the challenges for me, and I think for clinical colleagues and GPs, is about how we ensure that patients um, have EpiPens that are in date all the time and then how we ensure that their friends and family and colleagues are comfortable with using one when the situation arises and those those two things are really important I mean certainly there are standards in general practices about auditing looking uh, training people there are now great apps that people can have on their phone to alert them when their EpiPens or you know there are a range of adrenaline auto injector I should say you know EpiPen is one trade name of several um and they're all, all, but all the devices are slightly different and it's having the confidence to, you know, they're all of them, they're all very simple to use, but they are different and you, people need to pause and look at how to use them if they've never seen one. But you're not going to do somebody harm by using one if, they, if somebody says, I'm having a reaction and they're not able to inject themselves. So that's my public information point. If somebody says they need to use a pen, yeah. flip and use it. I do wonder if it would be worth, and I said this when we met with the Food Standards Agency, kind of what I would really like is some kind of public service announcement thing. You know, like you get the how to spot when someone's having a stroke or someone's having a heart attack. I'd like to see something that goes out in on like, you know, in the breaks between um, Coronation Street or whatever, you know, or like halfway through the football to, that says this is how you use an EpiPen. This is how you recognise an anaphylactic attack. Yeah. You know, this is how serious it can be. I mean, something like that. I mean, I, I remember the, um, is it, fast the um yeah. So, yeah. so i remember that just from watching stroke act fast yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly yeah. and, 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 and um, the, the all the public information yeah yeah so um steve over to you about the legislation where are we at yeah well i mean look first of all I, the, the campaign that you run is incredible uh you know you have already taken it a long way and it reminds me very much of Natasha's law campaign that I remember lobbying me when I was the minister. And obviously, I now merely chair the health committee and I'll do my bit to help. And I've, I took you, as as Paul referred, back in at the start of July, I took you to see Mark Spencer, who's currently the minister for food, farming and fisheries at DEFRA. And he he is the minister most responsible for the FSA, the Food Standards Agency. And I think we we had a good meeting with him didn't we and we took him through what he needs to do and and basically the message that we left him with was you can do something really special here you you don't have to do an awful lot actually to really to move the dial on this and so we are waiting for the response from him and his officials and I think Paul part of the reason you're in Ireland is to as you described to us to bolster his to strengthen his arm really isn't it where where are we on on post Spencer well, we we issued um, him with a, a number of impact statements as well. So we've got we've got quite a lot of supporters. I've got an email list of over three hundred people who I communicate with, and a lot of those people sent us what we call impact statements, which was just telling in their own words, and I honestly didn't edit any of them uh, to tell to tell us and to tell Mark Spencer in particular in their own words how life would be different for them if they had an Owens law because some of them fear going to restaurants or they've had experiences in restaurants it's not like it's a human right to go to a restaurant but I mean most people go and it's an enjoyable experience and it's good for the economy to eat out and all that kind of stuff but there's a large part of the population something like one in five of the population suffers from some kind of allergy or intolerance and and they need to know what they're eating and it's not difficult for the food industry to be able to provide that information. That's why we're here in Ireland, because they've been doing it for almost 10 years. And we're, I've just come from a meeting in a little 
country town called Kildare, spoke to the owner of the restaurant, who's also kind of the chef as well, and he says it's no problem dealing with the Irish law, which is what we want to see. I've spoken to chefs in, in the UK that say it is not a problem to implement what we want, which is simply to put the allergens that are in each dish of a restaurant's menu in writing on the menu, ideally, but if not on, on the menu, on another piece of paper, but to give that to the customers. They don't have to ask for it. Give it to them. Uh, let them make their own decisions. You have to remember some people might be an old person like me, um, may not want to have a discussion with a young waiter about their allergies. We do, as Emma said, encourage there to be a discussion, but some people might just want that little bit of privacy. If they've got the information in writing, it's going to be there for them to make that decision. It also has two other benefits, which is a, a kind of legal point in a way. So at the moment, they, the restaurant operator has to provide the information and by definition, it has to be accurate. There's no point saying it's okay, you can give inaccurate information. So it's got to be accurate. So that risk of inaccuracy versus accuracy is, is, is there today, but it's, it's made worse by the fact that it's conveyed verbally. By, by putting it in writing, you're forcing the person, the chef, the manager, to really think about it before they put it down in writing. So that's making them think a bit more making sure that the responsibility for the accuracy is there with the manager or the chef, not with this 18-year-old waiter that you might employ. That's one benefit. The other benefit is having written it down in that manner, it's up to the customer to make, customer to make that decision on what they're going to eat. And if they make a wrong decision and they've got an intolerance to, say, seafood, seafood and they choose something that's clearly got seafood labelled as being in it, that's their lookout as well. So you're dividing the responsibility clearly into two parts. So the lawyers would be happy, I would have thought, to see that that division of responsibility is, is made much clearer. It's all about risk management, and it, it can only be less risky if you put the information in writing for the reasons I've just outlined. And, and from our point of view, having looked at the food information regulations, it's regulation five in particular, it is, it is a couple of words that need to be changed. That is it. It's not a vast legal drafting issue. It doesn't have a whole load of um, unintended consequences. It's working in Ireland, which is a country so similar to our own in the UK. You know, same language, same mentality, same ethos. They've been doing it for almost 10 years. And, 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 and honestly, I can tell you, the people I've been speaking to who are in the industry, have not had a problem dealing with it. So I really can't see where the barrier is to implementing Owen's law. And, it, and as I understand it, Steve, you're the expert here, it's not something that needs to go through Parliament as a major act. It's not going to be a big act that needs lords and ladies to also... It's just regulations that can be done through a committee. That's right. It Why is a not? simple it is a simple regulation that will be done in a in what's called a delegated legislation committee upstairs. Listen, you've both become experts in a subject which you obviously were were knew a lot about through Owen, but you've become you've become great campaigners and and we we take our hat off to you. And we thank you so much for joining us. Again, Paul, Paul is joining us in in his car in Ireland where he's stopped this his fact-finding mission to chat to us. And uh, I know it's not your beloved Cornwall Paul where you live but i can see blue sky and white wispy cloud through the sunroof above your head so it looks like you know i hope you're getting a pint of something while you're over there as well 
I had, I had a couple of Guinnesses last night in a pub with some good <laughs> Irish music, and I joined in because I'm a bit of a folky myself. I, I never, I never I, doubted it. I never I doubted start, it. I had a star turn as an Englishman in 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 Dublin, and <laughs> and so I'm I'm on my way to Tipperary. It's a long way. Yeah, <laughs> boom. yeah, boom. Well, look, yeah, there's a, there's a there's an thank Irishman, you. there's a Welsh lady, the doctor, and uh, and two English people. Um, listen, thank you so much. Owens-law.co.uk is where you can find out about and sign up for information on the campaign. You can also find you, I think, across all the social media channels. We will post the link on our social media channels for people to write, find more information about Owens Law. Thank you for coming on the podcast and talking to us. Um, God bless. Thank you Good both. luck with the campaign. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, Bye. thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we'll take a break and then we'll come back. Welcome back. Uh, they were a great guest, weren't they, Helen? Really, really interesting people. They were fascinating. Heartbreaking story. But... I, I was so impressed by how articulate they were about something that is so you know painful for them both to deal with but obviously they they they're dealing with their pain by activism and good yeah. on them for that yeah you know when you've never met somebody but you feel that boy you would have liked them i yeah. tell you hearing about owen he does sound like a lovely lad and uh you know he played his guitar and uh, i when i first met emma i said you know what do you think owen will be doing now and she told me you know so with such sorrow about you know we'd probably be at university and chilling out on the beach in the summer and uh it's just mm. just so heartbreaking yeah. um but thanks then for coming on um absolutely so we're gonna change the mood now we're talking to talk about pants and prostates i think it's good to end with something a bit more like though i'm not <laughs> sure the prostates is a light topic but anyway steve tell me about pants so um the nhs has teamed up with Morrison's supermarket to mm -hmm. put labels in underwear, reminding people yes. to see people like you, their GP, if they spot potential symptoms of breast or testicular cancer. Um, the nutmeg, believe it or not, branded boxer shorts and crop top bras is going to be yep. in 240 stores in England in the coming months. And Fantastic. uh NHS England's National Director for Cancer, Dame Callie Palmer, who friend. is a friend of the podcast we had on, said this is the first time the whole of the NHS has worked with a national supermarket brand to put health messaging on clothing with the aim of encouraging thousands more people to be body aware so they spot new unexplained changes that might be cancer symptoms early and contact their GP. So there you go. If ever there was a prevention measure, how about that one? It's great because it's simple, it's very cheap, it's visible and it's it's actually something for younger people to be looking out for because I noticed it was the crop top type bras. Now I'm not going to be a judge of who wears what type of underwear. But, you know, and, and other underpants and other bras are available. But it's a great start. I think it was boxer shorts they've specified at the moment for the pants. Um, but it's a great start. And it's something that we can be thinking about more widely in terms of visibility of health prevention messages. So, yeah, great. Uh, I, yeah. And, and just to be clear, you know, we talk a lot about the pressures on general practice and GPs turning you away. We absolutely want to know if you've got funny lumps and bumps, if you've got a change in appearance of your breast, your genital area, we need to know about it because the sooner we act, the better the outcome. Him. yeah great and it's a great it's a great idea well i texted kelly palmer today actually has said well done it's a great idea unless of course you don't wear underwear but we don't know anyone like that and and linked oh, to this steve, don't uh, go no, there don't go no, there steve no, no, too much information um and but linked to this because of course prevention is the new cure yeah and early detection is cancer's magic key this fantastic story that's come out this week uh, a 10 minute mri scan could be used to screen men for prostate cancer so what this would do is it would 
it, it seems in the trial, which is a small number of people, yeah. it would be more accurate at diagnosing cancer than blood tests, which the PSA test, I think it's called, oh, isn't it? Yeah. That, I'll that tell you about use. that. Yeah. So is this something to get excited about on our prevention journey? It's definitely something to get excited about. It's just one of those that we might have to be a bit patient to see the uh, the real outcomes of this. So relatively small study, but a novel study published in the BMJ Oncology Journal this week. Um, about 300 men were tested, uh, had MRI scans compared with results of PSA screening, and the MRIs were far more accurate in detecting prostate cancer than the PSA test. To be honest with you, we've known for decades that the PSA test is unreliable. It misses an awful lot of cancers. It underdiagnoses and it picks up a suspicious people who don't have any problem with prostate cancer either. So it's not sensitive enough. It's not specific enough, which is why it has never been part of a national prostate cancer screening program. It's just not good enough. Uh, every time somebody comes in asking me for a prostate screening test a PSA blood test I have to go through the spiel and give them the warning that I'm much more interested in your symptoms and what your prostate feels like than than placing too much reliance on the blood test although the blood test has a place but its best use is in following up people who already have cancer to see how the disease is going so this MRI uh, if it can be done in a way that is cost effective portable can get out into communities to screen men it has great potential for being a much more accurate diagnostic test but of course more research needed um and that's going to take time to come through but it well, is I exciting I, I heard them talking about it on the radio yesterday and um they're going to do the next phase of the study i think is going to be with 800 men good so you know they're scaling it up and yeah. i guess it's just one to watch so it's called the reimagined study it's published in the bmj oncology and you if you want to read more about that i know our listeners are interested in getting more information a reimagined study bmj yeah. oncology uh publication and also a plug for prostate cancer uk the charity who are, are doing great work on this and i know have spoken out very supportively about this so uh, yeah. yeah and my friend michael dobbs who wrote house of cards and is lord dobbs in 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 the house of lords has lost his father and his brother to prostate cancer he's had it recently but it was caught very very early and Good. you know he now he now says himself it's as if he never had cancer at all yeah. so you know this, this is one of those cancers that we can catch very early and treat very early isn't it it's, it's very successful yeah absolutely catching it early does help i mean there are debates about some types of prostate cancer will never progress and what treatment is ideal for them but that's a different discussion uh the point is catch it early and then you've got all your choices open to you well that reminds me of the debate around breast cancer when people mm. said that we were over screening and therefore over treating and I, I struggle with that because you know detection of cancer early is always a good thing and but prostate is obviously a good example of that well i think it's one we should come back to at another time because there'll be minds greater than ours who can articulate it better but it's an interesting one whether we are over diagnosing and over treating or how we use technology genomics testing and more sophisticated testing to pick the people who will respond best to treatment and those that we can watch and wait but it's, well, a, when, it's, it's yeah well maybe what we'll do so it's professor caroline moore who is a consultant urologist at uclh in london she's the chief invest, in, investigator at the study at ucl so maybe we'll get her on and ask her all about it Super. anyway it's lovely to see you and uh, you too keep the, keep the sun shining and do my best. Uh, i understand you've got some diy coming up 
I do. We're having a little, taking a little break the next couple of weeks, husband and I, but rather than going away for much of it, although we're going to see family in Wales for a few days, but we're also going to have a DIYcation, which involves my husband and a lot of power tools and him telling me things to do because he's got dodgy knees and he won't let me use the power tools, but I'm very good at fetching and carrying. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll report back. And the biggest way for us to prevent accidents is for us to keep talking and keep being nice to each other and not have an argument over DIY. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, well, at Parliament Returns in a couple of weeks, that's when we will record episode 14. We've got some fantastic subjects coming up, got some fantastic guests coming up, and we'll be following up some of the stuff we've talked about today. Uh, Until next time, please uh, follow the show on the platform that you listen to it on. That helps us know uh, who's listening. And please get in touch with us with what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd like to hear us discuss. Podcast at stevebryan.com or find us on pretty much all the social media channels. Until next time, see you then, Helen. Take care. Stay safe. Bye. Bye.